The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 22. This is the last chapter of God's divine revelation. And how fitting that it should end with the realization of God's purpose in creating the world. God created this world to have a special chosen people who would worship him forever. Revelation 22 and verse number 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly, blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Our main concern today is verses 1 and 2. And I did read verse 2 a moment ago, didn't I? I got to looking at that. Did I skip it? You ever read the Word of God and you say, well, what did I just read? So let's read verses 1 and 2 again. That's the subject today. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. J.A. Seiss, a 19th century theologian, wrote, Very noteworthy is it that these last glimpses of a finished redemption end up with the same images with which the first chapter of human history began. All worlds move in circles, and the grand march of God's providence with man moves in one immense round. It starts with paradise and thence moves out through strange and untried paths until it has fulfilled its grand revolution by coming back to the point from which it started. Seiss writes about how human history begins and ends with the same themes. It begins with the story of, of how God created man and put him into a garden paradise. He created man and he breathed into him the breath of life and God placed man in this beautiful garden and gave him everything that he needed. And in a very short time, man sinned against God. He fell from that happy and holy state of innocence. And then God had to cast him out of that perfect environment. And from that point in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible begins to unfold God's plan of redemption. It records how that he restores the fallen human race in order to bring man back into paradise again. 
And I never want us to forget this, that the purpose of God creating this world was all for His glory. And as long as man stays in a state of rebellion against God, his glory is diminished in the eyes of the creature. Now understand, though, that God is glorious in Himself. He didn't actually have to create anything in order to make Him glorious. But God is glorious in Himself. And what God has created for His glory will not recognize that He is glorious until God does something for Him, until spiritual eyes of, are, of understanding are open to see it, man does not realize the purpose for which he has been created. And so the purpose of the creation is not fulfilled if we do not see God's glory. And this is what God does in the regeneration of the soul and in the redemption of man, that He opens our eyes to behold the glory of God and to see Christ on the inside, to see what Christ is really like. Uh, the prophet wrote, Isaiah wrote about the coming of Christ, and he said, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And this is where we are. We are in Isaiah 53, verse number 2, and that is that without knowledge of God, without knowledge of God in Jesus Christ, we always fail to see the beauty of Christ. In the, in the uh, uh, plain, unregenerate, natural state, nobody wants Christ. His name is defamed. Some of the most despicable and disparaging language is used about Christ. People don't want Him. They don't obey Him. And the reason that they don't is because they cannot see how valuable that Christ is. And then it is by the grace of God that the Holy Spirit comes with the Word of God and He convicts the heart. He gives spiritual sight to blinded eyes. And then Jesus is opened up as a beautiful blossoming flower. And then Isaiah 53 verse 2 is changed into Solomon, Song of Solomon 5 verse number 16. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Colossians 2.3 says, In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so when our eyes are opened up, we see the beauty of Christ, and then God has fulfilled His purpose for the creation. Man was made to glorify God. Man was made to worship Him in the beauty of holiness. And so thus the Scriptures end in this way, that the world is renewed, the curse is lifted, and then God's people are back in paradise where they worship Him forever. Adam lived in paradise for only a short time, but the people of God who trust in Jesus Christ will live in paradise forever. Now the parallels between the beginning and the end are striking in the Word of God. Genesis is the account of the old creation and Revelation is the account of the new creation. In Genesis, there's a curse that's levied, and then in Revelation, the curse is lifted. In Genesis, the tree of life is prohibited, where in Revelation, we see that the tree of life is permitted. In Genesis, Satan arrives, and in Revelation, Satan is removed. In Genesis, sorrows begin, and then in Revelation, we see that sorrows are ended. In Genesis, death is now demanded, and in Revelation, death is defeated. In Genesis, hope is revealed. And in Revelation, hope is realized. In Genesis, God's way and God's love and 
God's uh, abilities and everything that we know about God is obstructed, and yet we come to the book of Revelation, and all of the magnificence of God is opened up before us. Chapter number 22 ends John's tour of heaven. And it's intriguing how that God returns to the same themes in this chapter as at the beginning. And it helps us to see the temporary life of the original creation of earth will find its fulfillment in the permanency of eternal life for the saints of God in heaven. Now today, as we begin to wind down our series on heaven, we're going back to the creation to see how it finds its consummation in the revelation of heaven. In the 22nd chapter, verse number 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now in this verse, John saw in heaven that there was a river of life. That's what I want to talk to you about first this morning. And that is the water of life. That in heaven we see the water of life. Now I'd like us to take our Bibles, if you would, and let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to see a few verses here that will <clears throat> occupy our thoughts for a while as we compare Eden to heaven. And you'll want to keep your finger in Genesis because we're going to move around, but we're going to come back to it several times. Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> in the 8th verse of the 2nd chapter, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. Scripture says that there was a river that went out of Eden. There was a great river flowing out of Eden and it flowed with such a volume that it exited the garden and it split into four different rivers. The word says that there was one river that went throughout the land of Havilah. Then there was another river that flowed through the land of Ethiopia. Then another river, a third river, went into Assyria. And then there was a fourth river that flowed with such a volume that it becomes prominent in Bible prophecy, that is the river Euphrates that you still find on modern maps today. It begins in Turkey, it flows 1,700 miles until it empties into the Persian Gulf. There were four rivers that came out of Eden, and that water, that water was what made the garden lush and green. A water may well be termed the substance of life. Water is essential for life. God made our bodies substantially from water or of water, and he uses that to sustain our lives. And when scientists begin to look for life on other planets, we know that one of the first things that they look for is water. They want to find out, is there enough liquid water that could actually sustain life? Now, their idea, of course, is that life came from water. They don't really understand that, and they certainly don't understand the spiritual significance of that. They don't understand the Genesis account of creation, or they don't believe it. But interestingly, creature life actually did begin in the water. On the fifth day of creation, God made fish, and he made whales, and those fish and whales stayed in the water. They never came out of the water. Plant life actually began on the earth. And also, when God created the animals, it says that he created them on the sixth day, and he created them out of land, out of the earth, 
And he created man out of the earth. And thus fish have always been fish and men have always been men. Man was created in the image of God. And we don't have anything at all in common with fish unless it is the big mouth bass and a man has a mouth that's big enough to swallow the biggest lie that you could ever tell. Hook, line, and sinker. We're like a fish. Satan's lie was the first one. People are still hearing Satan's lies every time that an evolutionist opens his mouth, and from there the big mouth, big mouth bass takes the bait. Well, man did not begin in the water. The water is necessary for every living creature. Major cities are built along rivers, and that's because you need water, a lot of water, in order to sustain life. One of the interesting things that you might do if you get to visit Israel is when you visit the old city, you can go into a, a tunnel that Hezekiah built through solid rock in order to bring water into the city. In many of the ancient cities of Jerusalem, or of Israel rather, you would find this. There, there are waterways that have been tunneled through rock to bring water into the city in order to avoid sieges. Because armies would come, and when they wanted to get people out of the fortified cities, they would dam up the rivers, they would stop the water, and people would either surrender or they would die. Now, another interesting scripture about life-giving water is found in the prophecy of Ezekiel. If you'll turn to the 47th chapter of Ezekiel, there's a description here uh, about water. It's water in the millennial kingdom in which there's a great river that flows out of the new temple in Jerusalem. And it's a very interesting read. If you get time a little bit later on, you might want to read the entire passage. Let me read just a few verses for illustration, beginning in verse number 7. Ezekiel 47 and verse number 7. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live, whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even unto Engelium. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. So here we see this, this story about a great river that flows out of the temple of God in Jerusalem. This is the millennial temple. And reading that scripture, if you read a little bit more in it, you'll find that this becomes a river that is deep and wide, a river that's too deep to wade in. You can't wade across it. You can't swim across it. Swift-moving waters that flow out of the temple in Jerusalem and flow to the south until it reaches the sea. And there it says that the sea is healed and a multitude of fish are able to live in the sea. Well, you look at that and you say, well, that, that's not really too spectacular a thing, is it? That fish can live in the sea? It's not too spectacular until you understand the sea that this is talking about. This is a sea that has a long history in Israel. It's a sea that's in the desert. It's called the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is a briny, thick, mineral body of water 
that supports life only at a microscopic level down in the very depths of it. It is so briny. There are so many minerals that are in the water that no fish can live there. There is no life in the sea, and so thus it's called the Dead Sea. If you ever have a chance to wade into that water like we did a few years ago, you would understand what I'm talking about. Some people like to do that. When Gary and I were there, he thought that tubing on the uh, Dead Sea was a good thing to do, and so he did that. <clears throat> but for me, getting close to that water and just touching it and experiencing it, that was enough for me. I didn't want to get too into it too far. But the Dead Sea is like a huge lake. It's at the lowest point of the earth. It's 1,400 feet below sea level, which is about three times lower than Death Valley. The depths of it go down to another 1,000 feet. The salinity of it is just amazing. The salinity of the ocean is about 3.5%, but the salinity of the Dead Sea is about 35%. That's 10 times more, more salt than you would find in the Dead Sea. And, and, and not only that, but there are also many, many other minerals that are in there so that it's impossible for fish to live in the water. And so the, the water is nasty, it's slimy, and that's what makes this story here in Ezekiel uh, such a special story because there's a river of water, a pure river of water that flows out of the temple of Jerusalem and it empties into the Dead Sea and the waters of the Dead Sea are healed so that fish are able to live in it. And so the river that flows out becomes an actual river of life as it flows into the sea and the river becomes, or sea becomes teeming with fish so that people come with their nets and they cast them into the sea and they pull out catches of fish that are so large that their nets are stretched to capacity. In verse number 9 it says, And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, which whithersoever the river shall come, shall live, and there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. Now you don't really need a preacher to explain the significance of this scripture. This is talking about eternal life. This water is a symbol of life, and God put this story in Ezekiel to be emblematic of the pure river of the water of life that will flow in heaven. Now, water in the Scripture is often used as a symbol of life. Jesus used it when he spoke to the uh, woman at the well in Sychar, and he told her that if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give you, it will be a well of water that springs up into everlasting life. And his water then was emblematic of the salvation that he gives. That what his water is able to do is to bring the spiritually dead to life. And that water is needed because no matter how much water that there was in the Garden of Eden, Adam could never be healed with that water from the consequences of his sin. The only thing that would heal Adam is a different kind of water. And that would be the water of life that God gives, the water of life that Jesus Christ provides for us because of his death at Calvary. The blood of Christ is the cleansing fountain for our sin. As the, as the song says, there, is a, there, there uh, is a fountain that's filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And so this fountain is symbolically filled with, the Christ, with Christ's blood, and that is the real water that brings dead sinners to life. Now another great picture of the water of life is found in the book of Exodus. After Israel had left Egypt, 
they were in the desert and they were hot and they were tired and they were thirsty. The people thought that they would surely die if, if they weren't given water. And they didn't understand why God would do this. Why would he lead them out into the desert? Why would he let them leave Egypt only to die there for thirst? And what God wanted to do was to take them into the wilderness to teach them that they need to depend upon him and that he could give water in a very supernatural way. And God did that. He told Moses to strike a rock. And he said, when you strike that rock, the people will have their water. And so Moses did. He took his rod, he struck the rock, and out of it, water began to flow. Oh, we might think, well, that's just a little trickle of water. And so the children of Israel got in line, and they just waited until they got their turn, and then they got a drink from this little spring that came out. But you don't understand God if you believe that. Because God never does anything in that kind of way. God is always overabounding abounding in, his, in His mercies and His grace. And when He gives water, He gives lots of water. And so when Moses struck that rock, there was a gushing stream that came out. There were two million people, at least two million that were in the wilderness. And they received this water from God. Well, what did that mean? I mean, is, is the water that came from the rock, is this just about thirsty people? No, there's a more incredible miracle that's in this. In 1 Corinthians, we learn, it says, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so that was teaching us something, an Old Testament lesson to teach us about Christ. The rock followed them. Christ was always there for him. them. That rock represented Christ. And when Moses struck that rock, that was a symbol that Christ was going to be smitten that he would be nailed to a cross, and then he would die. And from his death, eternal life is won for everyone who believes in him. So what a marvelous way that the Bible builds on these themes of Scripture that enable us to see Christ and what he does for sinful souls. He is the giver of life. He is the water of life. And so we see there's water of life in Eden. There was water of life in the desert. There's water of life in the temple and then there's the water of life that is in heaven. Now notice the first verse again. It says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So John saw this pure river that flowed in heaven. This tells us, first of all, about the purity of life. The water is pure because it's a heavenly stream, and everything in heaven is pure it's pure because Christ is pure. There is nothing in heaven that can defile. Heaven doesn't need a hydrological cycle, not like the earth does. Heaven doesn't need actual H2O in order to sustain life, which naturally brings up the question, what is the chemical composition of this water that's in heaven? And to be honest with you, I don't know. I know that it's not dead sea water. I know that it's not a polluted stream. I hardly think that it's the water of Santa Rosa, which is some of the most expensive water and worst-tasting water that you can find anywhere. I know that it's not, it's not Santa Rosa water. And I know that it's not a water that's needed for physical life in heaven. No, we're talking here about eternal life that God gives, and this water is for eternal life. Now, Revelation is full of symbols. You know that if you studied the book. There's so many symbols and we have to be very careful that we don't push symbols in the book of Revelation too far. 
there are things that I think that we could draw from this that I think we certainly know are true. For instance, that water of life in heaven would have to be representative of regeneration, the washing of regeneration, that we are cleansed from our sins in the blood of Christ, that we become pure and undefiled because of the sacrifice of Christ for sin. So I think that we can say that much, that it's emblematic of the washing of a generation. I think we could also say that it must be emblematic of the Word of God because the Bible also says that it's the Word of God that cleanses us, that God uses His Word. And so I don't think it would be any kind of a stretch to say, well, that Word or that water represents God's Word. But then there are people who try to stretch the symbols. They want to put too much there. And so I've heard that some say, well, the water of life in heaven is a symbol of baptism. That the way that we have eternal life is we must be baptized. And so they have an, oh, brother, well, art thou type of theology that says let's all go down to the river and get baptized. And then we'll have eternal life. Well, you don't get eternal life in that way. I know that this is not talking about baptism. Baptism never brought anybody life. In fact, you're not even supposed to go into the waters of baptism until you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ by faith in Him. So we're not going to say that. This does not represent baptism. <clears throat> now, the verse also says that the water flows from the throne. Now, that's a picture that we've also already seen in Ezekiel. In the millennial kingdom, there was water that flowed from the throne. That's the sanctuary of the temple. And water flowing from that throne tells us that God is the author and he is the originator of our salvation. Coming from the throne tells us that God is sovereign, that God is in charge of this, and there's no way that man can approach God, that he can come to God and help God with anything, and that's because we're dead in our sins. And we'll stay that way until God floods that river of life over us, and then our souls are awakened and come to life. The river is also crystal clear. The original word there is lampros, which means bright and radiant. In verse 16, Jesus said, I am the bright and morning star. He says, I am Lampros. I am radiant. I am, I am brightness. I'm radiant light. And in this passage, we, we also see the equality of Jesus and God the Father. It says, the river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And these are things that we ought not to miss in Scripture. And how many times have we looked at this is how the Bible shows us that Jesus is God, that He and the Father are one and the same, that they are equal, they are equal in the Trinity of God. 1 John 5, 7 is a disputed verse of Scripture. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are some people who say, well, that's not an authentic verse. That verse doesn't really belong in the Scripture. And if it should turn out that some overzealous copyist decided to put that in to help us out a little bit to understand the Trinity, they say, well, don't take that verse out because that means we wouldn't have the doctrine of the Trinity any longer. Well, you never have to worry about that. Take 1 John 5, 7 out, and you still have plenty of proof all throughout the Scriptures that our God is a triune God. He is a Trinity, and that Jesus Christ is God Himself. He is the Son of God and yet co-equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But we see that the water flows from the throne and it cascades into a bright crystal river. 
And doesn't that speak to us of the wonderful blessings of salvation? That Jesus is so wonderful, that Jesus is altogether lovely. Haggai called him the desire of all nations. And if you look back into chapter 21, there you'll see that it says that all nations will come into the city for the glory of God. So the nastiness of sin, everything that keeps us away from God is gone forever. And then there's yet another great picture of the water of life. There's purity of life in heaven, but then there's also the prosperity of life. People are looking for prosperity. And there's a gospel that goes around today that says you can be prosperous in this life. You can have all that you want. You name it, you claim it, God is going to make you prosperous. But the Word of God doesn't speak about that kind of prosperity. But it does speak of the prosperity of the Christian as he goes to his eternal life in heaven. In Psalm 46, verse 4, it says, There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, and the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Psalm 36 says, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. There shall they be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. Don't you love to read the Psalms? Filled with so many beautiful word pictures. We will drink of the river of God's pleasures. Do you know that some people are just so, so disgustingly wicked that whenever you talk about pleasure, they think about sex? They think that is pleasure. And so thus you have, you have uh, the uh, Muslims who want to have 40 virgins when they get to heaven. And you have the Mormons who want to have so many wives and so much sex that they can populate their own planet when they get into eternal life. You can tell they have no idea of what salvation is. They have no idea of what pleasure is. They have no idea who God is. Because pleasure in heaven is not those things Pleasure in heaven is to delight in God. Pleasure in heaven is worship. Pleasure is to look into the face of Jesus and to give all of our love and our desire to Him. Pleasure in heaven has, is to have all tendencies toward self removed and to lose ourselves in the glory of Christ. A full flowing river is a symbol of prosperity. There is abundance of life where a river flows. In Genesis chapter 3, it begins the story of man's redemption from the fall. And we have all these different kinds of pictures that are given us. God sacrificing animals to clothe Adam and Eve. God saving Noah in the ark, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. God promising Abraham to make him the father of a multitude. Oh, there's prosperity in the pictures of the Old Testament. God prospered his people to make them a great nation. He led the sons of Jacob, the family of Jacob, into Egypt. And do you know where Pharaoh let them live? He let them live in Goshen, the best land in Egypt. And Goshen was in the delta of the Nile River, one of the greatest rivers of the earth. And then we read in Exodus chapter 1 what happened, how Israel prospered. It says, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. 
So this is what God did. They're, they're in the delta of the Nile. Prosperity around the water. They grew, they multiplied until they became such a great people that Pharaoh said, we've got to do something about it. They'll become confederate with our enemies and then they'll rise up against us and overthrow us. That's the prosperity that God brings to his people. And this is what we inherit in God's kingdom. We come into the kingdom where there's a river of life and we never hunger or thirst again. And like Adam had everything in the garden at his fingertips, so God returns us to that place where we have everything that we'll ever need in heaven. We prosper abundantly in the paradise of God. Now some believe that the water of heaven flows out of heaven and then flows into the new earth that it flows through the streets, it circles throughout the streets of the New Jerusalem, and then it cascades into a river that falls off into the earth, and there the earth is made lush and green as the Garden of Eden was. I don't know if that's true. I'm not going to make a doctrine out of it. There are too many things about heaven that we don't understand, too many processes that go on that are above us. But the most that I can be sure of, and I know for sure, is this, that this water is connected to eternal life. Now let's go to verse number 2. In the midst of the street of it, and on the either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now let's talk for a few minutes about the tree of life. The tree of life. Very interesting subject. Lots of people want to know about this tree of life. Well, as the river makes its way through the city, the banks are lined with a certain type of tree. It's described as the tree of life. All that we know about it from this scripture is that John described it as a tree. I hardly think that God would let us see a symbol of the tree when there was a literal tree in the Garden of Eden that was by the same name. I think it's a real tree. Let's go, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. I hope you're still holding on to that. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the garden is filled with every type of tree, every type of tree that we know of today, because that's where trees came from. But there are only two trees that are of interest to man's relationship with God. One of them is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the other is the tree of life. Now of these trees, only one of them could be eaten from. One tree was prohibited and then the other became prohibited. Now let's look at a couple of things as we finish the message. First of all is the prohibition to eat in the garden. Now, we're still at the beginning, so let's go to Genesis 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, we notice that Adam can eat of every tree but one. He could eat of the tree of life but he could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil this is the tree that satan lied to evil about or to eve about and he told her that the fruit was good if she would eat of the tree then she would be like god 
And both Adam and Eve bought into that lie. They took the bait because they believed that was a tree they couldn't live without. Soon they found that it's a tree they couldn't live with because there was death in the tree. And sin is like that. You think that you can't live without it. Oh, I've got to do it. I can't live without this. And God says you can't live with it. Sin is always a bite that devours you. And so God told Adam, you're going to die if you eat of the tree. Satan said, don't worry about that. Eat of it and you'll live. Now, for some reason, we've never figured this out. We haven't, we haven't figured it out. We still think if we disobey God, things are going to turn out all right. We'll be just fine. We'll just do what we want. We'll disobey God. And so the whole world continues to eat of the tree. Now, because Adam ate, God imposed a new restriction on him. If you'll look over in chapter 3 and verse 22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims with a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now do you know that Adam had never eaten of the tree of life? Adam hadn't eaten of that. He could have. But he never did. And then after he ate the forbidden fruit, God said, you're never going to have the opportunity to eat of the tree of life again. So Adam did not eat from the tree that he could have, but instead he ate of the tree that he should not have. And so Adam ate of the wrong tree, and then spiritual death came on him. And then God was not going to let him eat of the tree of life, because then Adam would have lived forever in spiritual death. And so what God did was to block off the access to that tree, and he cast Adam out of the garden. Then he protected that tree. He put uh, angels with flaming swords to keep the way of the tree of life so that Adam could not go back into the garden and eat of that tree, because if he had, then he would have lived forever in a spiritually dead state apart from God. And God said, I'm not going to let that happen to Adam. And so we have to think about this, and, and sometimes we think, well, what a terrible outcome. God threw Adam out of the garden. Why didn't he just let him stay there? Well, he didn't because God was protecting Adam. The, the uh, work of redemption could not begin until Adam is out of the garden where he can't eat of that tree again because then there would be no hope, there would be no mercy, there would be no grace if Adam ate of that tree. And this is another part that people haven't figured out. People want to exchange eternal life for a few years of sinful pleasure here. And they don't understand it's just not worth it. It's not worth it to love sin so much that you end up missing heaven to end up in the stinking hole of hell forever. So God did a wonderful thing for Adam. He shut him out of the garden. He didn't want him to live forever on this earth that he had cursed. God had something far better for Adam what Adam lost is nothing compared to what we've gained in Christ. Paul explains in Romans 5, where he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then he goes on and says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, 
Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Adam's sin brought death. But the obedience of the second Adam, that is Jesus Christ, brought life from above. So Adam lost the right to eat of the tree of life at the beginning in the garden. But then we look and see what happens in heaven. Next is permission to eat of the tree. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And we notice the passage doesn't say anything at all about eating. There's a tree of life there, but it doesn't say anything about eating from it. But we do have a place that says that we do. This is Revelation 2, verse 7, where Jesus said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Sounds to me like we're going to eat. Jesus gives permission to eat of the tree of life. Then he says, "Who, who are these people that have the opportunity, that can eat of the tree of life? He says that they are the overcomers. Who are they? Overcomers, as you well know, comes from the word Nike or Nikao. Overcomers, conquerors. These are people that believe in Christ and it is their faith that overcomes the world. That's what gives them the right to the tree of life. No one except those who have faith in Christ have the right to the tree of life. Which means there is no one who can live forever without Jesus Christ. He's the tree of life, actually. You must eat of Him in order to live forever. Well, the next question is, must we eat of this tree that's in heaven? Do we stay alive in heaven by eating of the tree? Can we skip it? Is it an actual tree anyway? Well, I can't say absolutely for sure, but it would seem odd to me that the parallels in Genesis and Revelation would be so striking that you have a tree in the Garden of Eden and a tree of life in in heaven, and yet it's not a real tree. It's just a symbol. And that's because the Bible uses metaphors, but it always lets us know when it's a metaphor it's obvious to us for example in in psalm chapter one it says and he shall be this is the believer and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season his leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper well that metaphor is obvious unless you believe that god's going to actually turn us into trees and so in revelation 22 it doesn't say we're like trees anything, or this is like a tree. No, this, this is a tree with the same name in the book of Genesis. A real tree that Adam could eat of if he had remained innocent from sin. So it appears that this tree is renewed in heaven for existence in the new Jerusalem. Well, the text presents problems for us. Twelve different fruits grow on the trees. They're different according to the twelve months. And yet the Bible says there's no time in heaven. So what's a month? How would you tell what a month is? It says that the tree is for the healing of the nations, and yet there is no sickness in heaven. So what do we do with those kinds of problems? How do we solve that? Well, the best that we can do is to say that what God has given us is a picture of things in human terms, pictures of things that we can't understand. He puts into human terms so that we can understand them. That's what we call anthropomorphisms. Things that we don't understand about God are put into human terms so we can understand them. So this is our first look at what Sy said. All worlds 
move in circles. Man's fall was in the garden, and then human history progressed, and God fixed what happened. And when he's done with the whole work of salvation, when he has repaired it all, fixed everything, that's when we move back into paradise again. And the one that we're going to live in is far better than the one that Adam lived in. Heaven is where I'm headed. I don't understand all there is about it. But I know that by the grace of God that living in the pleasures of sin on earth cannot compare to living in glory forever. And I know that sin yields hell, whereas the righteousness of Christ yields life in heaven. And I don't think that I have to ask you which one of those is best. The righteousness of Christ or the unrighteousness of this life. Which one is better? Now to get to heaven then, you must drink of the water of salvation that's offered freely in Christ. Revelation 21 verse 6, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And I can promise you this, that when you take a drink of this water, this is when Christ is opened up. This is when you actually see on the inside how beautiful that Jesus Christ is. On the outside, he is a man. The Word of God says there was no beauty in him, nothing that would desire you would desire to come to him. It's when you see the inside. When you see Christ opened up, that's when you understand how beautiful that he truly is. So I want to ask you today, have you had, have you taken that drink of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him as your Savior? You know him for eternal life. And if you haven't tasted him today, I invite you by faith in Jesus Christ to take a long-lasting drink of him and then receive eternal life from him. And then he becomes to you altogether lovely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Word pictures that we see in this text. A water of life and a tree of life. And we know, Lord, that these kind of things come directly from you. We can't supply them. There is nothing in this earth that can give them to us. There is no thing that we can possess that will bring it to us. Only Jesus Christ can. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open up the eyes of some lost sinner today to help them to see Christ and his beauty. And then, Lord, for those who are Christians, help, help us to keep this in our mind at all times, what you have done for us. Mercy, love, and grace that has been expended upon us. And because of that, we want to serve you, obey you, be the kind of people that exemplify the Christ, the life of Christ in our lives. Help us to do that, Lord. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.